Hello, this is John Hendren, and this is the 27th episode of BotCast. this first movement about um, starts out with harpsichord but just an eighth note in we get the violin so we're not playing games anymore by, by putting one instrument and sneaking another one in or vice versa starting right off, right off the bat with violin and then sneaking the other one in we're, we're there together but the the harpsichord and the violin here have a pretty interesting relationship this movement is in the key of E major and repeatedly in these these quarter notes on the second uh, first and third beats like a drone we keep getting these e's e e e e did you notice that and in just about the time where i faded out we finally move that note we go down to uh, let's see what we've got here we got a uh, a d then we get a G sharp, and then we get a C sharp, and then we get an F sharp. So he's going through a, a cycle there. And if you if you happen to open the score, uh, a good portion of this entire first movement has these strong notes on the first and third beats. And what's going on the right hand? Dun 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 dun. He's got not just single notes, but full chords being played. And they're really kind of figurations. They're moving around. And then you've got this sort of freewheeling violin part that can't be too freewheeling because you've got this regular thing going on the bass. But if you were to look at the score, it's just a mess of... What looks like fast notes, but of course we're we're this is a slower movement, so it doesn't it doesn't go by quickly. But it, he's basically just doing these big noodling around. When we say noodle around music, it's kind of your you start a note and just kind of move around that note. So he he has a little bit of a theme there, and then there's just a lot of this. Um, you're basically on your way to landing on these notes, not forever too long, and then you kind of got this drone going on. So it's it's a very different, perhaps, relationship or texture or uh, compositional plan that Bach has taken here than what I focused on in our earlier episodes when we looked at the first and second of these sonatas for violin and harpsichord. This is BWV 1016, the third sonata in the series. 
And the performance we just listened to was by Pablo Valetti and Celine Frisch, who we have heard in the last episode performing the, the second sonata. And again, kind of interesting way of box composing. Now, in the past episodes, I've been focusing on a couple things. Uh, the melody in the violin, because these violin plays a very prominent part. It's easy to hear. It's the only instrument playing. And I've asked you to kind of listen for what's going on in the right hand of the harpsichord part in this performance, um, uh, keyboard part in general. But that tends to have a melodic piece to it. And that sort of follows here. Now, I'm going to give you a taste of another sonata, a violin sonata. And I'd like you to see if you hear something going on in the right hand, if, if, if that's fair. Um, again, we've we heard an example of a Corelli sonata. And Corelli, of course, was Italian composer. Everybody was trying to emulate Corelli. And his, his big book, his Opus 5 collection, was published in 1700. So here's Bach uh, a little later on. Corelli's behind him, and yet he's trying to innovate a little bit, I think, or, or trying to make it a little different. But my question to you is, what were his contemporaries doing? This is a violin sonata by George Frederick Handel, and Handel was born in the same year as Bach, and he, like Bach, wrote chamber music, and this is an example of the way he wrote. Now what you're hearing in the basso continuo line is a cello and a lute, but basically it's the figured bass that we've talked about in the past. You've got a bass line that's written out and you realize chords, but there's no extra line involved. And I could play any number of examples um, throughout the Baroque that were just like this. So in BWV 1016, Bach isn't giving us counterpoint in that right hand, but he definitely has written out this, this part. And this, in this case, this is not something that you could have arranged for something else, like a flute or something to play that second line. It's, it's not what we, we would necessarily call a trio sonata texture. Instead, Bach is doing something that you could only really do on a keyboard like a harpsichord, and that's play chords in the right hand, to play all those notes at once. So he's really accomplishing two things. He's giving us the harmony, but he's also writing out everything we need to do, uh, leaving nothing to chance, per se. And I've been focusing on that as we've gone, but the, the thing I would like to point your attention to here is, is you know, when you're getting, try to get under box skin maybe a little bit and try to think how is he approaching the composition of these works. Um, you know, we keep seeing, okay, he, he's got this plan that he repeats a couple times so far. Got a strong, melodic idea. We call that a theme. It's not necessarily fully written out, but it's enough. He starts that. 
the right hand, maybe it starts in the violin, the right hand picks that up, you've got some counterpoint going on, and then those two voices kind of play off. It's not a pure, what we would call a canon, where the the line has been written in such a way that it's always going to harmonize with itself or come back and repeat. Bach certainly plays with that when he gets to the musical offering. He plays a lot with canons. Um, certainly there are examples before that as well, but here it's kind of the, uh, not a, as formal as a fugue, but he's taken an idea, it's got this little rhythmic piece to it, and he repeats it. Little rhythmic submotives of that theme get repeated, and before you know it, you've, you've wrapped up one of those movements. Um, but I'm not sure that that's all that he had to think about. That's, that's the easy stuff for us to look at. The harder thing, perhaps, and just because the way we hear things, unless you're special, um, is to look at the bass lines. Because in Bach, the harmony is so important. We've talked before about the ideas of uh, those four-part chorales that might come at the end of one of those cantatas. And those harmonies are so important, but the base of the harmony, the basis of the harmony, is the bass line. The bass line determines what harmonies are available to you. Um, and so it, it bears, I think, our attention to look a little bit at bass lines in these pieces just because they're an important element. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this movement, you've got this kind of pounding, relentless E, 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 E. Um, I thought they did a, a fine job at reading. Nothing really stood out to me of, of any concern, but I'd like you to hear the take on this from another performer. And so now we're going to move to some new territory, and before I reveal who this is, I will give this a listen again. So this is the first movement, and again, try to put your attention on what's happening in the bass line here. So in this performance, the harpsichordist isn't deliberately cutting the notes off as, as quarter notes. She's letting them hang a little bit. The harpsichordist is Maggie Cole. The violinist is Catherine McIntosh, and they released this on the Chandos label back in 1997. Uh, you may know McIntosh from being one of the uh, leaders of the Academy of Ancient Music under Christopher Hogwood for a number of years. 
Uh, she's been the, the leader, I believe, of the Purcell Quartet. And so she's, and she's also Professor Baroque Violin. Maggie Cole is probably less well-known, but they, I think they make a good pair here. The one thing I'm kind of wanting, and I told you to pay attention to the bass line, um, which I'll get to, but the thing I'm wanting here is those long notes. We talked about in the last episode that when you land on a long note that uh, certain violin treatises would, would kind of give you some indications what you can do there. You could ornament it. You could, you could add extra notes to it. You could uh, swell into it, you know, crescendo, decrescendo. Um, you might add vibrato. And here, Macintosh really isn't doing a whole lot. She's very deliberately holding it for its value, but I do not hear uh, change in dynamics, um, which is, is just too bad. Now, I wouldn't recommend doing a lot of ornamentation and thing on these notes because Bach has already written out pretty much what he wants us to play. Uh, at least that would seem to be the case since so much of that line is already written out that those long notes are actually a time for maybe that harpsichord texture to come through. So what's happening in the bass line? The bass line, we get a lot of those E's. We eventually get down to B, and B is the dominant chord in an E major scale, uh, B major. And so we're, we've moved to five uh, in the scale, and that's usually a, uh, a goal for composers to get to five. And we hear a lot of Bs, and then the, the harmony changes again. Um, Nothing too interesting, I don't think, with the bass line here, but I wanted you to see how the bass line, when he finally goes down to that, to, um, when he goes down a step to the D sharp, wow. Just It just changes the flavor. Um, and, of course, harmony is the thing that does change flavor. Uh, if, if you kind of get what I'm talking about, um, harmony is is a big component uh, to what we hear in music. So as we look forward to the next movement, it's written in, in two, uh, which is an indication of Baroque music that it would be quick. And I'm not going to sing for you because I'll, I'll butcher it. But this has it starts out immediately with a bass line in a, what I would call a tune wouldn't call it a theme. It, it is a tune, and I'm not sure where it comes from. Um, when I link up the show notes, maybe we'll find something. But um, it's got this kind of little kitschy vibe to it. Um, it's it's It doesn't sound to me like something Bach, the great J.S. Bach would have come up with. So I'm wondering if it's something that he borrowed. That's That would be a guess, but I don't know. We look at the bass line. It looks kind of cool. It's um, it's not having big jumps. He's doing what um, he's he's presenting a lot of notes that are next to one another. And so if you think of a, of a keyboard, um, if you're jumping around, you're, you're playing a note and you're moving 
any number of steps in one direction or the other and playing the next note. When you're playing notes right next to one another, it has what's what's sometimes called in, in jazz music as a, as a walking bass. Boom, 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 boom. You go up, you can go down. Um, and so when you get that in music, you got to consider that, well, the composer meant to do that. Uh, it just doesn't happen. So you're building your melody on top of a harmonic progression. And Bach, no doubt, would have kind of figured out the harmonic progression he wanted as he kind of fiddled with the melody. And as much as he might have worked at creating a cool-sounding theme to present as, as a melody for either the violin or the right hand, he's also looking at that bass line. Um, believe it or not, it has a lot to do with the way I think we hear the music, even though it might not be the first thing our brain goes to when we hear it. So we're going to listen to the, um, the opening of this second movement from BWV 1016. And again, performance by Catherine McIntosh on Baroque violin and Maggie Cole on the harpsichord. So Bach is being very pragmatic or economical with his um, with his construction set here. You've heard this dun 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 dun, dun in the violin line. Then you've got in the bass, boom 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 boom. He plays it faster. We'll call that a diminution in that it's it's played twice as fast. But he's got this. This idea of short, short, long, short, short, long. And in the upper part, it's short, 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 long, short, 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 long. Kind of mirrors. There's there's this flavor if you got the single on the bass, you hear something like it up above. Uh, that cute little melody is just kind of interwoven there. After the harpsichord's done with it, they pass it to the violin. Kind of comes back. Um... It's got this little walking bass here, a little rhythmic motive from the melody that comes back again in the bass. And he takes something very maybe simple or even elementary sounding, maybe even could be a children's song, but he makes something um, quite complex to make it all really work together.
I think this is the coolest part of this movement. We've got this big rising line that kind of comes do 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 It's like, okay. And then you've got this part where you get this long note in the violin. And I was surprised. Uh, Pablo Valetti decides just to hold it. And we got a little bit of a trill action, a little modification added there by Catherine McIntosh. So just to give you a different taste, this has been the... Uh, we've, we've, dovetailed in here to Valetti and Frisch from their 2000 recording on the Alpha label. So this again is Valetti and Frisch performing the third movement and we've moved to a minor key. And what is kind of cool what Bach has done is he's again very economical the way he's using his materials. Uh, this time the bass line gets very interesting. Um, we get an octave leap, and then a semitone down, another octave leap, semitone down, get a couple notes down, but he's kind of following a pattern there. Uh, he's following a, a harmonic progression. And we get that, remember that bass note that we kept getting in the first movement? In this movement, He's again adopted that chordal approach to the right hand, but it's the one that's repeating. Uh, it's not really moving. Da, 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 da. And what that enables Bach to do is to have this beautiful melodic violin line. But then after a while, he gives some harmony in the same type of guise to the violin part and gives over the melody to the right hand. So when I compare the, the two versions, there's obviously some difference in the sound quality, the, the tonal quality of the different instruments used between the, the four performers. Um, but they're very compatible, I think. Uh, surprisingly, uh, Macintosh takes the tempo in this third movement just a little bit faster. Although this is one of those cases where I actually kind of enjoy the slower tempo. So uh, I'm going to be siding with maybe liking the performance by Valetti and Frisch maybe just a tad more. Um, but you could really go either way. There's there's really some interesting things in both performances to enjoy. The one I want to play from the third movement is actually going to go back to the Gould performance that we featured uh, two episodes ago. Um, they did not believe that these chords that you're hearing in the right hand and then eventually taken up in the violin with, with double stopping were really meant to be played together. And so what they do instead is they roll them. And it's it's quite a different sound. It's quite a different um, uh, take on this, which you'll probably find a little bit unusual. Uh, you might like it. I find it um, probably to be one of those things where it's those idiosyncrasies of Glenn Gould that uh, doesn't isn't quite right. But he he is persistent, and um, for better or for worse, uh, Jaime Laredo has to do the same thing when 
when he's presented with those uh, two notes to play at the same time, he also takes to rolling them. Uh, and rolling just two notes doesn't quite sound right. See what you think. strange huh so he doesn't always play it world but um, they were trying to get their musical ideas and come up I think with something that worked together and for as much as I would say that is not the way Bach intended for this to be played there is something about it that makes uh, it that playing and that technique um, very transparent very easy with Gould not only of the way he's rolling the chords, but his articulation and, sh and shortness of the notes, to hear the di distinct lines. Um, so, again, you, you may be interested in checking uh, out Glenn Gould's reading of these. Uh, I think he makes some interpretive decisions that probably haven't stood well as, as more scholarship's been done, but nevertheless, I did want you to hear that very different approach to the performance. We're going to finish now looking at the fourth movement. The fourth movement to me is uh, strong. It doesn't have this kind of um, strangely uh, juvenile sounding theme. And uh, there's something just about that theme for the second movement that, that strikes me as odd, that it might be something that Bach borrowed. And I'm going to have to do some research to that. This last one has the complexity of maybe what we heard in some of the other uh, second or fourth movements in terms of a well-wrought theme, uh, possibilities for counterpoint. And again, listen to it first by Catherine McIntosh, Maggie Cole. Then we'll hear the version by um, Pablo Valetti and Celine Frisch. And we'll talk a little bit again about what Bach is doing in the bass line. Da-da, da Da, 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 da. Listen to the bass line. Da, 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 da. Dun, 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 dun. Now that same rhythm goes to the violin. Dun, 
This is really fun music. I hope you, I hope you think it is. Um, this is very catchy, and by hearing those back to back, you kind of got the sense that well, Valetti is a little more daring, a little more perhaps virtuosic. Uh, he took a, a faster tempo, and we've come to find that he tends to be maybe on the fast side in general, and he definitely takes off here, which to me, with all of the notes that the two of them have to play in sync makes makes this even more challenging. Uh, I can really go with either one. I like I like fast, but uh, I can also take the tempo that um, Macintosh and Cole adopt as well. So in looking at this, uh, it's hard not to it's hard not to ignore the melody. It's just this kind of perpetual machine, right? All these sixteenth notes. And what's happening in the bass line? So when it opens, there's no right hand because Bach really is here playing equal partners between the right hand as a melody, um, a second voice, and the violin being the first voice. And so the first line of the music is just violin. Um, horrible singer there. But he's basically dun, 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 dun. So it's just fancy figuration, we call it. Um, you got to pull out where he's just, he's kind of playing just a little melody line, but that that's in there and kind of sets things in motion. And then, of course, the harpsichord picks it up. Um, the other distinctive thing he's done, and this would be, would we consider this the, the evolution of the theme, uh, the B section, if you will, um, he stops the 16th notes, goes to 8th notes, but then has these leaps. That's easy for us to hear orally. We hear that little jump. It's it's a high. It sounds like it's going to a high note, and so when the violin is doing some other things and and the right hand of the harpsichord is doing that, 
we tend to recognize it. And it's a rhythmic thing, but also that, that leap uh, is, of course, it's, it's the same notes that have been transposed uh, in, much, in much the same way any fugue theme would be transposed as it appears in different voices. But Bach just makes it easy for us to hear that with it by using that, that kind of leap, um, which just speaks to, which I've said before, he tended to write really good, strong themes uh, as part of his operating procedure. So if we look at the, and I want to look at the bass here because, well, before we look at the bass, let me just say one more thing about this. Um, if you were to look in the score, uh, and I'm using the score that's the handwritten handwritten one here today. Um, you basically go to the second page, and in the middle there's a, a fermata written. And a fermata in music is this uh, cir um, half circle and a dot underneath it, which basically means you can pause there if you want. Um, both performers don't choose really to pause, but what it happens there at that point is this perpetual this regular 16th notes violin switches to triplets and what happens when you get the answer back in the in the right hand it's again in the quicker 16th notes so Bach is playing with triplets against 16th notes and then eventually all of that makes its way to the right hand as well and the faster 16th notes get pushed back to the violin he's really doing this back and forth stuff and which makes it kind of cool right well let's look at the bass line boom 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 it doesn't look terribly different in terms of what Bach is trying to do in terms of uh, the other movements. Octave leap, E, E, F sharp, octave up, F sharp, G sharp, octave back down, G sharp. So the, these themes that we've been seeing, the, the, the notes repeated, he's basically doing that here, but he's doing it with octave leaps. Nothing too unusual about that. And then we have a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Again, we get some eighth notes. And eventually he passes those fast notes down to the left hand. And so eventually the bass kind of gets this new life of its own, right? Uh, it's playing in part here, and so now what he's come up with is is really a, a more of a truer three-part texture. We always had the basses, that third voice, but to play with it counterpuntally um, just adds to the complexity here. This is a, a really neat movement. Um, it's It's very clever if you can look at the score and see... And even if you don't read music, you can kind of see, as long as you can keep your eyes between the different lines, uh, to see how he's taking these motives and passing them between the different voices. Um, 
and this is where the baseline, I think, it's, it's worth taking a look at as, as a whole. Now, we could have done that with all of these, and I would continue to invite you to not only listen for the violin part, not only hear hidden in the middle there that melody part in the right hand, but look at the bass line. Um, it really speaks to Bach's, what he considered artistry, I think. Um, and that was being economic with your ideas, getting the most out of it. Much unlike a chef who's presented with uh, an animal um, to cook, you know, we have the, we have the benefit uh, here in the United States to go to a supermarket and buy just a chicken breast, and that's it. Uh, but if you're in a restaurant and you're buying a chicken, um, you know, you don't want to be throwing away the parts uh, if, they're, if they're good and usable. You find ways to use all of that. You might make a mousseline. You might use parts in that. You might um, have a different dish that, that uses the thighs. Um, you may do a roasted chicken dish. Um, and my analogy will probably break down here, but the idea that Bach has started one of these scenarios with some ideas and then keeps them in some form. And I'm looking at this at a, at a very informal level. Um, no doubt we could go into more detail and see more of what I'm talking about. But just visually looking at the score, you can start to see some of the things I'm talking about. How these rhythmic and melodic pieces get moved around. How he takes the idea of repeated notes and then takes that same idea but twists it around in the next movement, uh, which which gives continuity between the pieces. Um, it's not always easy to hear that unless you really listen to something and really get to know the piece well. But, you know, these pieces aren't necessarily interchangeable. We could do that. We could take the first movement of one of these sonatas. Um, we could... You know, obviously, if we had transposed them all to the right keys, and we could switch things around, you're like, well, that okay, there's a slow movement, a fast movement. I get that. But it, when a deeper level, when you get to get to the nitty-gritty, you can see that they are related. And they're not related in ways that necessarily are real easy for non-musicians to hear. But you've got to understand that in box time, probably a lot of the people that would hear this music were... Uh, into music. They were uh, performers. They would have had some of this in their education. Uh, and that's that's a guess I'm making, but um, I'm pretty confident that, that that probably would have been the case. And if you consider that these ever might have made it to somebody else, uh, definitely there's there's a sense of pride in being economical with ideas and getting a lot of uh, lemonade out of just a few lemons. Um, and so with that, I'm going to end this episode of BachCast. Hope you enjoyed, enjoyed this one. Uh, for me, again, the third movement is kind of interesting. Uh, it's, it's rich, and I, I love the, the change of key there to the minor mode. Uh, it's, it's well done, and I love the interplay between what the harpsichordist does or the pianist does and then passes it on to the violin and Bach saw to say, hey, we've got this idea that 
that a violin can play multiple voices. And so the writing for me looks very strong. There's no way you're going to easily rearrange this music when you're playing chords in the harpsichord to another instrument, um, another melodic instrument, or just uses basso continuo because you have to have uh, all those keys available. And then he says, well, the violin can do some of this too. And so he uh, engages with double stopping in the violin part. That's kind of cool stuff. And then in this last movement, to me, it's the strongest of the four. Um, it's just this kind of really cool theme, has a counter theme, the, the B section, bah, 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 those jumps, and all of those elements find their way in the bass line at one point or the other to kind of bring it cohesively together. Um, and so that's it. Sonata number three for violin and cembalo certato. That's how they've written it on the album by uh, Pablo Valetti and Celine Frisch. The other uh, recordings we've listened to in this episode include Catherine McIntosh and Maggie Cole on the Chandos label. And we also, again, listened to a clip from Glenn Gould and Jaime Laredo, the violinist in that. I'm John Hendren. And thank you for listening.